2: I'm Jeremy Cliff, writer-at-large in Marseille.
0: I'm Emily Tampkin, senior editor, U.S. in Washington, D.C. And I'm Alex
3: Kruger, managing editor international near the border of Slovakia and Ukraine.
0: It's Saturday, the 5th of March. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs, and every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise.
2: In this episode, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky calls on the United States and the world for more support. We believe that NATO member states have created themselves a narrative that the closure of the skies in Ukraine would provoke direct aggression and retaliation from Russia against NATO. It's self-induced hypnosis of those who are weak and lack confidence, even though they can possess arms stronger than ours while the world debates how to support Ukraine without sparking a still larger conflict. One of the
0: responsibilities we have, even as we are doing everything we can to give the Ukrainian people the means to defend themselves effectively against Russia, we also have a responsibility to ensure that the war doesn't spill over even beyond Ukraine.
3: More than a million people have left Ukraine already. We'll be discussing my trip to the Ukrainian border. What I learned from the people who have suddenly found themselves refugees and some of those who are trying to help them.
0: Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. If you joined us for our Wednesday episode, you will have heard that we promised an update on Friday. Obviously, today is Saturday. We apologize for that. But just for various logistical reasons, it's out today. And for anyone who is less familiar with the podcast and did not hear my little spiel on this on Wednesday, Normally, we are twice weekly, Monday and Thursday. With the Russian war in Ukraine, we have tried to be more flexible to be able to give you more information, more up-to-date information, and just keep our listeners abreast of the story. With that, we, I'm delighted to have Jeremy back on the podcast. Jeremy, thank you for joining us from Marseille.
2: Thanks. I should also add, I'm not here on some sort of holiday. This has been the, the end of the conclusion of a reporting trip to France, which started or was conceived of as a portrait of France ahead of its election and has ended up being a portrait of France going into an election overshadowed by Russia's war on Ukraine. So it's turned into a rather different reporting trip from the one I'd imagined, albeit a still interesting one. So I can perhaps bring a couple of my insights from this trip and and how it is affecting the French campaign into into this conversation.
0: Absolutely. But first, I would like to start out by asking you, you had a piece on how this war, it it changes everything. You had a piece on the, the heroism of Zelensky. And what I wanted to ask you is, do you think that it is perhaps changed more, or to put it a different way, that the resistance of the Ukrainian people has altered the course of events in a way that President Putin did not expect? Because as you wrote in that piece immediately after Russia reinvaded, we should say, you wrote that even Putin didn't know what would happen next.
2: Yeah, I've been watching the scenes obviously coming out of Ukraine and most recently from remarkable scenes from, I think it's pronounced Kherson, which is a city close to the Crimea, on the Dnieper River, which is the first, I think, significant city to be occupied by the Russian troops, where we've seen the most astonishing scenes of Ukrainians taking to the streets with Ukrainian flags, protesting against the Ukraine, the Russian soldiers who were there um, in one unverified uh, video being shared, climbing onto a Russian tank and, and waving a, a Ukrainian flag. And I think they've struck people as an example of the remarkable bravery and resilience we've seen from the Ukrainian people so far in this conflict. Um, But I think it's also significant as an example of how badly Putin appears to have misread Ukraine, and this this is important for multiple reasons. It's important because we've seen how important it is that the Ukrainians have the spirit and the resilience and the spirit and the sort of commitment to defend their country in a military sense. But I think it also goes to the very heart of Putin's thinking on this, and and others have made this point too. But 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 something that I wanted to get across my piece about Zelensky is that this defiance, both from the president but also from the Ukrainian people, directly contradicts everything we know Putin thinks about Ukraine he does not think it is a real country he thinks it's a sort of puppet state of the west he thinks that the ukrainian people are a lost tribe of, of the russian people that they're not truly a distinct people and that kind of that thinking on ukrainian history and ukrainian society is fundamental to his whole vision of the whole vision behind this invasion seemingly and i think it's Really worth noting how far events have diverged from that reading of what Ukraine is, what it stands for, and what it what the country itself, what Ukrainian nationhood means to ordinary Ukrainians.
0: I agree with all of that. We're also now in this position where Ukraine's allies and partners have found this middle way to support Ukraine, where they they have not gotten directly involved in the war themselves, but are sanctioning Russia and are providing military support to in, in the form of arms to. Ukraine. We've heard Zelensky call on on NATO in particular to do more by setting up a no-fly zone. Putin actually earlier today on Saturday said that that if that were to happen, NATO would be understood to be a party to the conflict. And I am truly loath to say that Putin is right about anything at this point. But but in a sense, and wrote about this week. In a sense, that would be NATO joining the war. In that, if to set up a no-fly zone, you don't just say, oh, the planes can't fly there. It would in, in a sense be NATO forces taking on Russian planes, which risks, right. in my view, is just a tremendous risk that could spark a nuclear war. But what? how do you view this, Jeremy? And mm. then Alex, I'd, I would like to get your opinion on this as well.
2: I totally get where the calls for a no-fly zone are coming from. The, the scenes of human suffering coming out of Ukraine are very hard to, to bear. And I think there's a strong sense across the world outside Ukraine that we want to do all we can. But as Ido wrote, there is a genuine danger that a no-fly zone, which is not a sort of a small deal, it's not a kind of a minor incursion. It would involve direct airborne conflict between NATO forces and Russian forces, that the risk that it triggers a bigger war between nuclear armed powers is too great. And I think his argument is convincing. And I think another thing I'd add to that is that it's not as if we have exhausted yet the other means we have of supporting Ukraine. Much as the sanctions have been impressive in their scale and speed, not too much has been done yet to cut off the flow of energy from Russia, particularly, obviously, within the European Union. And there, we can obviously do a lot more. And, and I think states are starting to look at this option. Do we actually start cutting off the, the gas and oil flows, find alternatives, except that there might even need to be energy rationing in parts of the EU, it could come to that. But I think that is a more cautious and all kind of proportionate response to the, the crisis there, one that can do further damage to the Putin regime in Russia without risking some sort of dangerous escalation. But I don't know whether Alex wants to come in on that as well. Yeah,
3: I'm reminded of the debate around no-fly zones during the war in Bosnia in the early 90s. And initially, the outside world really resisted being drawn in, the EU and the US. They didn't want to intervene in Bosnia. But eventually, the pressure for action grew so great that there was a no-fly zone. And I think that as the crisis in Ukraine builds, we will see a search for different options, because I think sanctions have had what effect they can have, and that will continue to bite, and particularly the cutting off of the Russian economy. But I don't think this question of a no-fly zone is going to go away. We've just been down at the border with Ukraine, both in Slovakia and Hungary. My colleague Phil and I and there's this stream of people coming across, and the numbers are just going up day by day. There's an entire tent city now set up on the border, um, at just near the Ukrainian city of Uzhhorod on the Slovak side, receiving all these people. The need to do something is going to grow. We saw military helicopters overflying the border in, in a couple of places, just watching what was going on. So w- what do you do when the, when the pressure for, for action is, is this intense? it's, this question is not going to go away.
0: I saw that there was some poll that said that 74% of Americans now support a no-fly zone. And it just, I I just do wonder whether people are fully thinking through the realities of of what that would mean. And I, I don't mean to sound callous. I don't mean to dismiss the suffering of the Ukrainian people. I don't mean to say that we shouldn't do more But a fight between nuclear powers is not a small thing, and I just think that the principle of first do no harm should probably be adhered to in this case. There's already the risk that this spills over into a NATO country, into the Baltic states or into Poland, in which case NATO will have to get involved, and in which case we already are in this scenario. But that is very different, in my view, than setting up a no-fly zone, potentially shooting down a Russian plane, and having nuclear powers at, at odds.
2: Yeah. I, I wonder how much the cost and the seriousness of the sanctions that have already been announced actually have been internalized in um, Western populations this was I said I'd um, share some of my reporting from France and one of the uh, sort of one of the points that came up in a few conversations with those close to uh, French senior figures in Paris was this question do voters really understand the scale of how much we've done and what more do we Western leaders need to do to actually prepare people for this because the sanctions will have costs for the West, particularly if you go down the road, as I'm advocating, of widening them to cover imports of Russian energy. Mm-hmm. Um, but even the ones that have already been imposed, the costs on companies that make money in, in, in the Russian economy, the costs of the cutting off certain access to SWIFT, the cost of seizing the central bank assets and additional costs, including all of the additional spending on defence that we've seen announced, very welcome announcements, including from Germany, the costs and the, the logistical scale of, of taking in these refugees coming through the border in places where the one you're, you're in now, Alex, I think these are all incredibly positive and the right steps, but, but they will take a lot of an adaptation for these societies. And I do wonder, it's all happened so fast. And we have had big big set piece speeches from the likes of Macron and Schultz and Biden and Johnson, but where the kind of ordinary people, ordinary voters, the likes of whom I've been speaking to here in France, have actually fully grasped how much this will mean for the state of the economy, for other aspects of everyday life in in, in the wider West. So that's something to watch. I would gently suggest that possibly more clarifications and statements of, of those costs need to come from those leaders so that Western electorates are prepared for it. And so that they also understand that, some, that, that, that a lot is already being done, which is not to say don't do more. I'm, absolutely, right. I'm very much on the do more end of the spectrum. But I think that when you read these polls about things like no-fly zones, it, you know, it needs to be taken within the context of that, that larger picture.
0: I have one more question for you, Jeremy, and then I I want to turn to Alex and and her reporting trip. But there is an upcoming summit in Versailles on Ukraine's nuclear facilities. Can you tell us just a bit more about that and a bit more about the the conversations around that that
2: you've been hearing in France? It's actually a much broader summit. It, It was planned to be a kind of one of the summits of the French presidency of the European Council. But obviously, recent events have given it a much bigger significance. So this will be the leaders of the 27 EU countries gathering At the Palace of Versailles outside Paris on the 10th and the 11th of March for a conversation that Macron hopes will be quite far reaching in terms of the future of the European Union. And I think that this is another thing we haven't heard enough about. We've had big and huge announcements from Germany, 100 billion euros, new defense fund, more than 2% of GDP on defense spending. From France, talk of radical expansion of European defence coordination, an obvious expansion of NATO's presence on the eastern flank of its own territory. And all of this adds up to a lot of change for the European Union and and, and, and its member states. And what's going to be interesting about the summit is I think it'll be the first set piece discussion of what this actually means. So where does the EU go in terms of defence integration, in terms of common procurement, in terms of common intervention initiatives, in terms of structures like the PESCO enhanced cooperation structure or the French led European intervention initiative. There are all of these sort of alphabet soups of, of structures at the European level for, for working together on defence and security. But that's going to have to be expanded and consolidated and rethought in a very big way now. And then that's going to have other knock-on effects. If you have all of this common defence, how do you pay for it? Do you need common EU taxes? And if you have more common EU taxes to pay for common EU defence, do you then need to adapt the political and democratic mechanisms? So you, you get this, kind of, this huge expanse of topics where the EU is going to have some quite existential discussions. And I think that their side will be where Macron tries to kick those off. So that will be well worth watching.
0: So now we are going to turn from the geopolitical to hearing from someone who has actually directly been affected by this. As we said, Alex is on this reporting trip on the Ukrainian border. Alex, if you could tell us a bit about some of what you have seen and heard and introduce the person from whom our listeners are about to hear.
3: Okay. Well, the person you're about to hear is a doctor. Her name is Maria Kripak. She is Ukrainian. She fled Kyiv with her two children. She left behind her husband and their dog. They went first to their country house and then they fled the country altogether.
4: In the first day, we came uh, to our uh, country house because it was uh, rocket and explosion, and everything was very good. So, all our lives break in one moment. We take something we can take, sorry, uh, and then we all come to our countryside. And uh, it was two days. So, so, today we were there uh, with our family, with my husband, my, my mom, and dad, with my sister, and her, her children as well. Uh, but then in several days we were cut from water, uh, electricity, and uh, we have some wood <laughs> to make our house warm. But then it was explosion nearby, and so me and my husband, I take my children, and then we go to Turskavets, it's a big but it's everything is uh, stuck, uh, so. It's no no to live. Only hotels, but hotels. You know, it's too much expensive, expensive to <laughs> live for, for a long time if you don't have work anymore. So and so we have only this. <laughs> this when, when we come, our, my husband left because yeah. yeah, because no, not indeed. he left today and this uh, purpose. And then he will don't give to go to army and we have no choice.
0: Alex, when you spoke to her and you know, when you spoke to others, what
3: struck you the most? What struck me was the the refugees who'd got over the border, they were almost euphoric. They were just so happy to be out, to be safe. It was just that step across the border. On one side was war, on the other side, they knew they were safe. And what struck me was that we had no difficulty persuading them to speak to us. They wanted to tell their stories. And the other thing to mention is that this is just the tip of the iceberg. This is the beginning of the flow. And these are the best equipped people. These are the people with money. Some of them have their own cars. Many of them have relatives in other countries. These are the ones who will best be able to cope with displacement. The ones who will come later, and the UN is now forecasting up to 4 million people will be displaced. They will be in a much worse situation These are people who don't have other languages, who don't have contacts in other countries. They will be coming across the border with almost nothing. What I saw was this extraordinary effort. People really want to help, but this is going to have to be help for the long term. And the people who need that help most, they aren't even here yet.
0: Alex, one thing that I have been thinking about is, you also have a clip that that I think we can put in the the show notes. We've circled it on on social media.
4: It was regular day, So we woke up, we ate, we read news, and even when uh, Russians, Lavrov, lied, then they wouldn't begin it. I trusted. I I knew that he lied, but I trusted because I wanted to. Because we don't want war and everything because of our crazy, crazy Russia.
3: How do you feel about Russia now? Is
4: it? You know, I'm half Russian, but i I just hate them. I hate that people are, are silent in Russia. Of course, there are some meetings, but it's nothing, you know It's nothing.
0: even as things were falling apart and, and and coming undone elsewhere, in Sarajevo up until the very up until it started, they did not believe that it would happen to them because these were their neighbors. this was their city, these were their lives. And I, I was wondering, Alex, if you could speak a bit more about about how people seem to be coming to terms with the fact that one day you're having your coffee and walking your dog and living your life. And then the next week you're a refugee.
3: One day you're a pediatrician in a private clinic in Kiev with two children and a country house and a nice life. And then that life right. is just shattered, like Maria Krepak that we just heard from. I don't think people have come to terms with it. And yes, there was this sense that they didn't want to believe it. But so many of the people I spoke to, they heard the explosions on the 24th of February. And that was it. They knew they had to go. They might have been worried for a couple of weeks before. But we spoke to one woman, her colleague phoned her and said, you've got half an hour to pack and we're getting out. So these two women, and the daughter of one of them got in their car and they drove from Kharkiv right in the east of Ukraine all the way over to the border with Hungary. And I should tell you, yeah. the border with Hungary was, it was so calm in comparison to the absolute bedlam that has been elsewhere. There were just people coming over in ones and twos. It was relatively easy. But we spoke to so many people from Kharkiv. They, they heard what was happening. They saw what was happening and that was it. Just pack up and go. And I think it's only when they get across the border that it begins to sink in. And also the fact that they may not be going back for a very long time, if ever, and they've brought this one suitcase. And this is the rest of their lives. Like, whatever happens next, their lives will be marked by this. With any luck, most of them will be able to go home. But some of them never will. And that's just really difficult to take in, that takes a long time to process and they are just running on adrenaline and euphoria and fear and relief and they have no idea what happens next, but as I say, most of the ones who got out, like, like we were talking to somebody from an Irish aid agency yesterday and he said 90 to 95% of those coming across now, they, they have accommodation, they have friends to stay with or family or volunteers will take them in, so they are looked after for now. And it's only later that the full impact will become clear.
2: Could I ask, what's your sense of the response from the authorities, so both individually in the case of Slovakia and Hungary, and also more generally in terms of the EU as a whole, from the reporting on these border points?
3: I think the response has been pretty good. A lot of this is spontaneous volunteers, but even the, even they have organized themselves pretty quickly. But I think the response generally has been really good. One thing that's striking is the offer of free transport on trains, as long as you show a, a Ukrainian passport or ID card almost across the continent. That helps enormously. There are, people can stay for at least 90 days. And I think there's now this suggestion that you could, displaced Ukrainians should be able to stay for three up to three years without visas. So from that point of, point of view, it's good. And there's certainly in Hungary, I've, I spoke to fewer people away from the border in Slovakia, but in Hungary there was this sense that these are our neighbours, these are people just like us, and so we, we have to do what we can to, to, to help them.
2: I think that actually brings us in some ways full circle in this conversation because, Emily, you you mentioned my my trip to Kiev in, in late January. And of course, given the prospect of war, the possibility of war back then, I asked everyone I met, are you making plans to leave or have you got plans to go elsewhere? And most of them said, yes, I've given it some thought or I have worked out a plan B, but none of them thought it was likely. And the reason they didn't think it was likely was not that they thought that Vladimir Putin would not be capable of something like this, but that they thought that he would realise that he would face the sort of resistance he has from the Ukrainian people. And as, as one person I spoke to put it, you've got to believe he's about three or four steps more crazy than he has acted so far to do something like this. And of course, that's been borne out. They were completely right. The will to resist of the Ukrainian people was so strong as to militate strongly against the Russian attack, but but attack Putin did. You then have, I think, this country that thought its neighbor would not do something so mad, having to respond at the last minute and maybe without a great deal of preparation. I'm glad to say that those that I, I spoke to then, as far as I know, got out of the country or got to safety in some form. But I think that as a whole, I think Ukrainians thought, we know that we're going to stand up for ourselves. We know that we will put up a fight. And so we don't think it will actually come to that because we don't think that's in Putin's interests or something that something so reckless that he would do. He turns out to be just as reckless and choose your adjective, but poorly advised or of poor judgment that he's gone in now. And the country has been taken by surprise, but they're reacting with all of the resolve that they always said they would. So it's, a, it's an interesting link, I think, between these two different parts of the story.
0: Alex has more reporting and more material from this trip that we will be sharing on newstatesman.com international. So please do visit and follow along. It's the refugee. I don't even want to c- call it component, but the, the story of the refugees and the displaced people is, is such a part of this story and we will continue to follow it.
2: Wherever you are in the world,
0: if you're interested in global affairs,
2: you can subscribe to the New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12.
0: That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America.
2: Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok. And over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: With that, I'm not going to ask you to turn from refugees to doing like a sing song little chorus introduction of the segment, but this is a segment that we like to call You Ask Us. And we have a question this week from email. It was sent by Neil, who is in Scotland. And the question is, I was wondering if you could discuss what the war in Ukraine and the dramatic shifts in German foreign defense and energy policy mean for the legacy of Angela Merkel. And then Neil in Scotland added this, could be especially good to hear Jeremy's thoughts given his very good article on Merkel when she left office last year. So Neil in Scotland, just giving more to Jeremy's ego. No, I'm just kidding. Thank you for that question, Neil, Jeremy. It would, be indeed, it would indeed be especially good to hear from you on this.
2: Yes. And thank you for the question, Neil. I think it's a very good one indeed, certainly in terms of how this all changes our view of recent European history. I think there was never going to be a world in which Angela Merkel's energy policies and her policy on Russia went down as one of the positives of her chancellorship. And I wrote that in my essay that Neil mentions in September, which we can add to the show notes of this. I always argued, as did many, that was that they were areas where she had not led Germany well and where bad decisions have been made, Nord Stream 2 always stood out, and we discussed it a lot in this podcast over the last year or even two years as a major weakness in the Western position towards Russia. But you can't claim and I certainly don't claim that the war doesn't change that. And I think while those were always it was always a mistake to make Germany, for example, so reliant on Russian gas. And it was always a mistake to build Nord Stream 2. And it was always a mistake to be so slow to build up Germany's defense and Germany's military. The salience and the scale of those mistakes are, of course, much greater now, given what we now know. And I think that history will, therefore, be more critical of Angela Merkel than it would otherwise have been. And when I was reporting that essay on her legacy, I spoke to, among many others, I spoke to the historian Timothy Garton Ash, And we talked about, I think we came to a similar view on certain positives and certain negatives of her chancellorship. One of the things that Timothy said, which stuck with me, and which I included in the piece, was that legacies of leaders don't stop evolving the moment they leave office. They continue Mm -hmm. to evolve in light of subsequent events. And he said Merkel is an example of that. History will, over time, tell us what Merkel meant. And it's unequivocal that it's reading of her time as at the head of Europe's largest economy, will be read more negatively now than it would have been otherwise i won't i will not hazard a view on where the the judgment will land in the long term because there are more events to come and they will continue to shape our our view of her chancellorship, but some have even suggested should she be some sort of EU or NATO special envoy in, in talks between Russia or and and, and Ukraine or, or whoever as part of a resolution to this. I don't know if this, how realistic those are, but that's an idea that's that's out there. But yes, to answer Neil's question, I think that history will be now more critical on Merkel as a result of this.
0: I I just have one quick follow up, which is I was very surprised at how quickly. German defense and foreign policy seemed to change over the week. Because sitting in Washington, you have German diplomats and think tank types. And in between, those two folks come to town. And and for years, they said things like, Nord Stream 2 is almost finished. There's no point in changing it now. And the 2% defense, 2% of GDP on defense, that's more of a guideline anyway. And yes, we agreed to it. But look, our economy is just growing so fast. There's no way to meet that. For years, every time they came to town. And all of a sudden, that was reversed. So my question is, do you think that would have been reversed as quickly and as dramatically if she were still the chancellor?
2: I think she would have done a lot of it, but not necessarily all of it. I think that Mm. there are several reasons why Schultz is is better placed to do this. And I'm not trying to just defend my own writing here, but I I did often think that there was something to this idea of the Schultz-led Social Democrat, Green, Liberal coalition in Germany as a sort of a turning point in German foreign policy for several reasons. Firstly, the Greens and the Free Democrats, the Liberals, who are the two junior coalition partners in, in the German coalition government, have always been a bit more robust on these subjects than the either the Social Democrats or the Christi- or Merkel's Christian Democrats. Secondly, I think Scholz, although he belongs to the Social Democrats and although that's the party of Gerhard Schroeder, famously. A pal of Putin's and a party very shaped by the idea that Germany and Russia need to seek dialogue and peace at all times. Schultz does come from a different generation and a different part of the party. He comes from, I don't think it's entirely relevant that he comes from Hamburg, which is the most sort of Atlantic oriented city in Germany. And I just think he represents a different part of the social democratic worldview on those subjects. And I think he's, of course, also not freighted by the weight of. Past decisions in the way that Merkel would have been in this in this position, so I think he's probably better placed to make to have a fresh start and draw a line, and that's what he did very decisively last Sunday with this speech in the Bundestag that really just ripped up decades of German foreign policy tradition and started a new era in Germany's role in the world with the with the scale of the new investment in defence in the announcements associated with this speech. Nord Stream two was effectively going to be canned with the quite ambitious sounding review into Germany's energy supply. we are at a turning point in in German history too here. And I think it helps that that there's a new chancellor in the chancellery who can lead that without the baggage of the past. So I do think it helps actually.
0: Thank you to Neil in Scotland. And thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk
3: or by tweeting at us. That's all we have time for today. Join us on Monday for an interview with Bruno Messias on what criminologists got wrong about Putin.
2: If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review, and tell your friends.
0: Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening, and until next time.